This is day two of the 2019 Idlewild Bible School. Our second period teacher is Brother Ben Brinkerhoff. His general topic is unity in Ephesus, the story of the ecclesia in Ephesus. Today's topic is battling false doctrine in Ephesus. Brother Ben. Good morning. Good morning. My beloved brothers and sisters. I, I find it helpful to summarize the last class at the start of the next one, just so there's a little bit of continuity. And we conclude our last class by looking just briefly at a verse from Timothy about doctrine. And you might recall it, the verse was 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, where Paul is exhorting Timothy and saying, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. And I quoted this to put a final point on how important doctrine really is. I tried to point out two simple truths, right? By way of summary, two simple truths in our last session together. The first is that we have no basis for unity unless we also have a basis for separation. The second truth was, if that basis is the gospel, they will understand it to be a matter of life and death. We're unified as the body of Christ insofar as we also separate from those who do not hold the same basis of that unity. And these two foundation planks of the gospel were shown to us in Acts chapters 18 and 19, and the first was the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to which Apollos and the apostles of John, disciples of John, both acceded, and by which they enjoyed unity with the brethren in Ephesus. And the second point of the gospel was the kingdom of God, for which cause Paul separated the ecclesia from the Jews upon hearing the doctrine spoken evil of in the synagogue. But it wasn't by accident that we then finished yesterday by quoting from 1 Timothy. See, it was, in, it was Timothy who Paul left in Ephesus as a young leader after he departed. Um, there's always disputes about chronologies. I'm not particularly interested in them. I've looked at all of them. This is, I think, the best representation that I can make of some of the key dates that are happening uh, for us here. But what I want to point out is that Paul is in Ephesus around AD 57. He's there for about three years. He's arrested upon the start of his fourth missionary journey. And during that time in Rome, I believe, he writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Paul is then released from prison in Rome. This is after the time of Acts has concluded. And then sometime after that, I'm guessing around A.D. 66, Paul writes 1 Timothy and Titus. Shortly thereafter, he's arrested and he writes 2 Timothy. <clears throat> the reason I point out that chronology is to tell you that we're going to go out of chronological order. So really, next thing we should be discussing is the book of Ephesians. However, I find that the issue of doctrine, whatever that issue was that Paul says, listen, hold to this because it's going to save you and it's going to save others. Whatever that issue is of doctrine is much better defined for us in 1 Timothy. 
than is defined in Ephesians. So I want to uncover what that controversy in the Ecclesia was because if we understand it, then we can look back at Ephesians, written maybe four years earlier, and see how this thing is being discussed then. So if you'll just give me that patience, let's go out of chronological order. Let's go then to 1 Timothy. I also want to make one thing clear about this session today. This session is going to contain, perhaps more than most sessions, some exposition because we're trying to understand what this doctrinal controversy was happening in Ephesus and in the Ecclesias of Asia. Um, and it's going to form a foundation upon which we can then make more exhortational classes later on in this week. So if you'll just bear me a little bit of patience today with the exposition in this study. I hope you still find it interesting. I know my dad will. There's a lot of history involved and other boring things that we both find interesting. Um, so, so let's then turn over to 1 Timothy, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 3, where the book opens this way. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightst charge some that they teach no other doctrine. So at the very beginning of this letter, Paul lays out that the main thing happening for which Paul needs to talk to Timothy about is there's some variety of warning about false doctrine that is arising within that ecclesia. And it's for this reason, I think, in 1 Timothy, the idea of doctrine is mentioned so often. In fact, I don't know if you're interested in coloring things like this in, but you might want to color this one in or write a little note in Timothy because it comes up quite often. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, which we looked, and verse 10, chapter 4, verse 6, 13, and 16, chapter 5, verse 17, chapter 6, verse 1, and verse 3. That's eight times in six chapters. So Paul knew that he needed to encourage Timothy because some issue of false doctrine was arising. Now my question to you and my question for the study is what was that issue? What was the issue of false doctrine happening in that ecclesia? Maybe you know, but if you don't know, then maybe there's a question to wrestle with and, and see if we can find some resolution with in this class today. Now, Paul knew that, that false doctrine would arise in the Ecclesia. He absolutely knew it. In fact, he warned the Ecclesia of it in verses I'm sure you're familiar with when Paul calls the elders of Ephesus down into Miletus on his way back to carry the Jerusalem poor fund to, you know, back to, to Jerusalem. At the end of the third missionary journey, he calls the elders to Miletus and he gives them a warning. And, and some verses taken out of the midst of that warning are found in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 30. We read there, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit hath made you overseers to lead the ecclesia of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. 
Now, why would G- now, excuse me, why would Paul use the metaphor of the wolf? Right? Probably, I'm sure you're thinking in your mind right now, probably in a reference back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15, where Jesus said this about that same metaphor: Beware false prophets which shall come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. Right? So I use the metaphor of wolves. I'm probably speaking about false prophets. In fact, Paul is saying amongst yourselves, within this group, within this very people here, there are going to come some that, that draw people after themselves. You know? And how often does that actually create the source of disunity in ecclesias? You know, that, that what happens is, is a brother has a point, <clears throat> and, and some people agree to the point. And then, and, then, and then he gets a bit of a falling about his point. And then, and then he raises the point up at the level of ecclesial discussions, maybe dr- throws a bomb into the business meeting, you know? Has anyone seen? I've done that, you know? Um, you know, I, I, I still apologize to San Diego Ecclesia. They still have the, some consequences of that. So, um, so the reality is, you know, because you, you, you want a reputation, you want a following. There's a pride issue here. What Paul's saying that grievous wolves, false prophets, are going to come in among you and are not going to spare the flock. Okay? Well, he talks about then speaking perverse things, and that word perverse there means to corrupt. So something that was pure is going to be made corrupt in their teaching. Okay? Now, what is it? That's our question. What is it? We're told it was going to happen. Paul knew it was going to happen. He's, in, he's writing Timothy to discuss it because it has happened. But my question is, what is it? So turning over to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, and verse 18, we pick up our first two clues regarding what this false doctrine is. We read there, verses 18 to 20, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may not learn they may learn not to blaspheme. So, so it appears that Paul puts these two out of the meeting. It's very likely but not certain that what delivered unto Satan means is that they were disfellowshipped. We might use that word disfellowship today. This is maybe how Paul was phrasing it or, or giving it a, a term in that day and age. But why were these two disfellowshipped? Well, our first two clues are this. Firstly, that they put away conscience concerning faith. And secondly, that they blasphemed. They put away conscience concerning faith and that they blasphemed. So what wrong doctrine then were Alexander and Hymenaeus teaching that was cause to blaspheme? And why did it cause them to lose conscience? Well, consider some of the evidence. First, direct evidence. Fortunately for Paul, we're given the name Hymenaeus. Now, that's a name we can trace through Scripture. In fact, Hymenaeus comes up again in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 and 18. So let's see what Paul has to say about Hymenaeus then 
and see if we can pick up some more clues. What does Paul have to say about Hymenaeus in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 to 18? We read there. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, in whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. So we pick up three more clues here about what this doctrinal controversy was happening in Ephesus. Okay, these are the clues. Firstly, they obviously taught that the resurrection was past already. Next is that this false doctrine led directly to ungodliness. And our last clue is this false doctrine is called vain babblings, which is another way of saying empty talk. Okay. So why was the doctrine called vain babblings? And what does that have to do with the resurrection being passed already? And what does this have to do anything with putting away conscience? Or blasphemy? Or ungodliness for that matter? So, what, so how do we piece all these different clues together? We got like the puzzle pieces, right? But we don't know how to fit it together yet and to form the picture that we're trying to look at. So turn back over to 1 Timothy, and let's take a look at chapter 6 and verses 20 to 21. We have another significant clue to bring to bear on this particular puzzle. In fact, perhaps the key clue. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, then, and verses 20 to 21 where we get our last clue to the puzzle. Paul says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Well, that's interesting. Oppositions of science, falsely so-called. You guys may know this, but science is simply the Latin word for knowledge. And the Greek word for knowledge is actually the word that Paul uses here. And that word is gnosis. Now, gnosis means knowledge, or more broadly speaking, enlightenment or revelation. I'm going to suggest to you that in Ephesus there's a very important doctrinal issue surfacing surrounding this word gnosis. And unfortunately it's an issue that pervades Christianity to this very day. So scholars including Dr. Thomas call this perversion Gnosticism. It's, it's like Christianity. It, it, it defines a very, very wide variety of beliefs. So you, you can't just pin the word Gnostic on something and say, well, this is exactly what that is. It's like defining the word Christian on something. Well, gee, it could be Mormon or it could be Christadelphian. You know what I'm saying? Like, they would identify as Christians, right? So, so it's a, it's a, it represents a wide variety of beliefs, and that's one of the things that are hard to get your head around. So what exactly is Paul referring to here, and what was this specific issue happening then in Ephesus? In general, Gnostics believed that they were saved 
by gaining a special or secret knowledge. And this knowledge awakened their dead souls to life. Okay? Their dead flesh was awakened by this special or secret knowledge. Now, the best definition I could find in the truth of Gnosticism comes from a book by H.P. Mansfield in his commentary on the letters to John. And other Mansfield is suggesting that the Apostle John was countering an early form of Gnosticism, in part as he wrote his letters. And to explain Gnosticism, Brother Mansfield quotes from the Encyclopedia Britannica, and amongst other sources, and this is his quote about Gnosticism. Amongst the majority of the followers of the movement Gnosis was understood as not meaning knowledge or understanding in our sense of the word, but, but revelation. These little Gnostic sects and groups all lived in the conviction that they possessed a secret and mysterious knowledge in no way accessible to those outside and not based on reflection or scientific inquiry or proof, but on revelation. It was derived from the times of primitive Christianity and from the Savior himself and his disciples and friends with whom they claimed to be connected by secret tradition or else from later prophets of whom many sects boasted. So while there are many variants of Gnosticism, the term itself doesn't stand for very much. In general, I would say Gnostics tend to agree on these three main core principles. Principle number one is that all matter was evil. Principle number two, that we have an immaterial and immortal soul in which a form of divinity dwelt, hence the reason it was immortal, and which was therefore good. And three, the salvation was essentially about the righteous or immortal soul being awakened with knowledge and delivered from the prison of the wicked and mortal flesh. Okay? Maybe they have those three things in common. Now, Gnostic belief about all matter being evil resulted in two main theories, according to a Dr. Alfred Plummer, an expert on Gnosticism that H.P. Mansfield quotes in his exposition of 1 John. So there's two different ways that this belief manifested. Okay? First, if the human body is utterly evil, it must be subdued and chastened to the utmost that the spirit may be freed from the burden of so vile an instrument. This might be thought of as ascetism. This was the issue that Paul was dealing with in Colossae. But the other idea is different, derived from the same set of, uh, of core beliefs. Secondly, the human, if the human body is utterly evil, it is a matter of indifference what it does. And so worthless and vile an instrument may be made to commit any act from which the real man might derive additional experience and knowledge. And that was the issue that Paul was dealing with in Ephesians. Now the second of these two theories is elaborated more fully by Alfred Plummer, again as quoted by Brother Mansfield, where we read, Gnosticism was not the open enemy of Christianity. It professed to give its approval and patronage to the gospel. The gospel was very good as far as it went, but Gnostics had a more excellent way. 
They understood the gospel better than the apostles themselves. It was a mistake to suppose that historical facts and mere precepts of Scripture were to be taken literally. It was still a greater mistake to suppose that the Scriptures contained all that was necessary for man's spiritual well-being. There was a higher knowledge, a more profound gnosis, and this the Gnostic would attain to and impart. Illumined by this, men would see that everything was comparatively of unimportance. The philosopher whose mind was enlightened by this esoteric knowledge need not trouble himself much about his conduct. He was steeped in light. Good actions could not seriously detract from it. Indeed, there are many things commonly regarded as bad, which the true Gnostic would not shun but seek as a means of enlarging his experience. Now, to the Gnostic, who had this particular set of beliefs, as defined by Dr. Plummer, three main issues would arise. Those issues are, morality doesn't matter. Righteousness was in no account in comparison with intellectual illumination. Secondly, the God of Scripture is no authority. Scripture was of no account in comparison to with a higher knowledge, which partly transmuted and partly superseded it. Frankly, if it came down to a discussion between the inner light and the guidance of my inner spirit and what Scripture said, Scripture loses. And the third issue that arises from this particular set of beliefs is salvation can't be lost. So the work of atonement was lessened in significance, for there was not really evil in sin. Okay? Now, this philosophy is actually given a name in the Bible as it develops into later generations. Does anyone know what it's called? It's called Nicolaitanism. Last point. Okay. Because they believed that the soul was essentially divine and their bodies were evil, Nicolaitans apparently taught that there was nothing the body could do to corrupt the soul. And since we're saved by grace and not works, there's really no works that could take away your salvation. Again, they literally put away conscience concerning faith. They didn't need to feel bad about sinning. Today, a similar idea is maybe described by the concept once saved, always saved, to which many Christians still teach. It leads directly to the conclusion that I don't need to follow any law, especially not the moral precepts found in the law of Moses because laws can't save and the soul is immortal and regardless. Hence, Nicolaitan Gnostics use these ideas to justify godless, immoral, lawless, and debauched lifestyles. So, what was the origin then? I mean, where do they get these ideas from? Where is the origin of these Gnostic ideas? 
Well, you wouldn't be surprised to find out that they derive from Greek philosophy, would you? Which is why Paul uses the word vain babblings. I mean, think of philosophers sitting around talking about nothing more than ideas and concepts which have no life and have no value, and they're arguing with them, and they're babbling, and babble, babble, babble this way, and babble, babble, babble that way, and it's all vain. And so Paul describes this idea as vain babblings. A quote on Gnosticism uh, from the dictionary illustrates the Greek philosophical foundations. The earliest origins of Gnosticism are obscure and still disputed. Probable influences include Plato. Gnostics borrow a great deal of ideas and terms from Platonism. They exhibit a keen understanding of Greek philosophical terms and use Greek philosophical concepts throughout their texts. Now we can be sure that Gnostic ideas were starting to pervade the Ecclesia in Ephesus particularly. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 2 just in case we have any doubt in our mind whatsoever that some of these ideas were, pre were prevalent and being taught in that city, we should have no controversy or confusion about that because the Lord Jesus Christ in his letter to the Ephesians found in Revelation chapter 2 makes mention of the fact. We see this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, verse 6, but thou hast... But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So what was happening is the Ecclesia at some point in its history had to make a stand against these particular uh, philosophers who were teaching these ideas. And the Lord Jesus commends them that the, those in the Ecclesia had made a stand. And so we realize you only have to make a stand if the issue is arising and is prevalent in the city itself. Now, it's not simply uh, Brother Mansfield that makes reference of this in Christadelphian literature. Uh, in Eureka, uh, concerning Nicolaitans... Now, let me make one comment about Eureka. Well, I just have an opportunity to say it. I, Eureka was always a book I was somewhat intimidated by. My grandfather, Dick Stone, used to tell me, if he told me once, he told me a dozen times, Ben, you need to read The Pioneers. Boy, he, he, it was a real point of him to emphasize that to me. But I put off Eureka because it just seemed, well, it just seemed intimidating, I suppose. And in studying this subject, I, of course, went to what Brother Thomas has to say on the Ecclesia in Ephesus. And I was, um, I don't know what the right word to use is. I was incredibly impressed with what Brother Thomas had to say. It's as if he laid out the whole study in about four pages. What I had spent months and months and months trying to uncover, he had it all there as an aside. Yeah, so this is what Brother Thomas had to say in Eureka. Talking about the Nicolaitans. This was composed of the wolves. Now that's a reference back to Acts 20 that we looked at earlier. This was composed of the wolves referred to in Paul's first letter to Timothy, chapter 6, verse 20, which we also just looked at. Where 
Paul says to Timothy, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane vain babblings and oppositions of gnosis, or knowledge falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. These came to be called Gnostics because of their professing what they called gnosis, or knowledge, a false science whose principles were subversive to the truth. Brother Thomas says. Now, Brother Thomas also suggests that these ideas were founded on Greek philosophy. He says this on pages 198 and 199 in Eureka. These Gnostics were sort of immersed or baptized philosophers. Gentile professors of the wisdom, then current in the world among the admirers of Plato and other heathen speculators upon the unknown. They conceived the idea of so commingling their speculations or fables of heathenism with the doctrine of the apostles as to make the compound palatable to the respectability and the learning of the age. He has much more to say. It's well worth reading that section of Eureka. Now, it's pretty clear that Hymenaeus who Paul mentions in both 1st and in 2nd Timothy, thus someone certainly from Ephesus, right, had Gnostic-like views. Again, let's read from our clue earlier, 2nd Timothy chapter 2, and see if we can figure out what Paul is talking about there. We read this earlier, but let's read it one more time. 2nd Timothy chapter 2 and verses 16 to 18. where Paul writes, But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. That makes sense to us now? You follow what that means? Why these profane babblings were leading to more ungodliness? Okay. And their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. So why does this quote suggest Gnostic beliefs? Well, Gnostics deny the resurrection. That's a big clue. And you ask yourself, well, we know for certain that the apostles and Jesus taught the resurrection. I mean, that is, that it comes boldly, jumps out of the pages of the New Testament. There can't be any controversy about that point. How could they deny the resurrection? Well, simple. They taught the resurrection was spiritual. The resurrection, according to them, and this is backed up by texts they found in Nag Hammadi. There's a, something there called the Treatise on the Resurrection. It's written a couple hundred years after this time we're talking about here, but nevertheless. It, what they talk about is that the resurrection was the resurrecting of the spirit within me that was dead to life. My flesh and my soul and my spirit was dead. But because of this special knowledge that I have now, now it's resurrected into life. And so then for the believer who had already had this knowledge, the resurrection for that person was already past. Now 
Now remember that Gnosticism taught that the body itself and all material substance is sinful and the soul is trapped in the body. So the whole point of faith then, the whole point of the idea is to escape the prison of the body. And if the whole point is to escape the prison of the body, then the idea then of being resurrected back into a physical body is a really unacceptable idea. If the whole idea is to escape the body, is to get out of the body, is to, for the soul to leave the body, because the soul is, is immortal, then why in the world would it make any sense at all to be resurrected back into a physical, material body? That seems like a dumb idea. That does not seem like their idea of salvation. And so they spiritualized the entire concept. Despite this, where Paul takes the Gnostics most to task, by the way, it could very well be that 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is a response to this belief in Corinth, as an aside. But despite this, where Paul takes the Gnostics most to task is over the immorality of their lifestyles. Now, in writing, now, Paul's not the one to do that. In writing about the Gnostics in the second century, an early church father named Arrhenius said the Nicolaitans, this is his description of the Nicolaitans, Arrhenius. Nicolaitans lead lives of unrestrained indulgence. That was his summary of the Nicolaitans. So Gnostics and Nicolaitans in particular rejected laws and moral laws concerning others, created by others. Morality was for them to determine and not anyone else. And this is why Paul says concerning Hymenaeus, back in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16, but shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. Okay. So are these words starting to make sense now? Can we see them on the page and they're not just words? Like now we have some ideas to fit those words around. That this is what was being dealt with. This is what had to be dealt with by Paul. It's for this reason that Paul puts such an emphasis on godliness in his first, second, in his first letter to Timothy. I don't know if you've ever noticed this or ever had a reason to color this in, but... But I, I pointed out that the word doctrine comes up often in 1 Timothy. Well, another word that comes up often in 1 Timothy is this word godly or godliness, right? Uh, it comes up uh, several times. 1 Timothy chapter 1, 4, 2, 2, 2, 10, 3, 16, 4, 7, and 8, 6, 3, 5, and 11. And again, if, if you're the kind of person that likes coloring things in, this might be a word to kind of color in as you look at Timothy, just remind yourself that this is a major theme that is developing in that book. So Hymenaeus and his fellows did not consent to wholesome words or to sound doctrine or to the doctrine that was according to godliness. And, and we can link any number of doctrines today back to this Gnostic thinking. In fact, this is one of the major themes of Dr. Thomas in Eureka is to link modern-day Christian practices back to these early controversies. He spends quite some time doing that. 
for example, they believe in the immortality of the soul, and Paul counters that in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, when Paul says, God alone hath immortality, why do you think he has to say that? So Paul is countering some of these ideas in his writing. And also in Titus chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, verse 7, Titus is written right around the same time as 1 Timothy. How about the belief that the soul is good and that it's the devil that makes me sin? Well, Paul counters that idea in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 and 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 to 5. How about the belief that we are once saved, always saved? Well, Paul counters that idea in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. How about a rejection of the moral authority of the law of Moses? Well, Paul counters that idea in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. How about the idea of the rejection of the hope of Israel and the restora- restoration of the physical kingdom of God on earth? Well, Paul counters that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 and verse 8. How about the idea of the, resurrection of the rejection of the resurrection in the flesh? Well, Paul counters that as we saw in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 18. So, so Paul is actually taking up these false beliefs in this letter and is systematically dealing with them. And actually, once you know what he's dealing with, you can see these things jump off the page. That's why he says that. That's why he says this. That's why he says that. He's encouraging Timothy to uh, correct the false doctrine, hold on to sound doctrine in that ecclesia. And think about the profound impact of Gnostic thinking on the ecclesia that this would have and and how desperate Paul would have been to repel this and to reject this. So we can conclude that, that whatever Hymenaeus believed, he was in some way trying to combine the ideas of Plato and the Greeks and other Gentile philosophies and put them into a Jewish and Christian context while also ironically, if you read closely, uh, positioning himself as an expert in the law of Moses, despite keeping none of its moral precepts, it's a strange unity to be sure that Hymenaeus was propounding in Ephesus. But let's consider just for a moment the doctrine of unity. Ponder for a moment how relevant doctrine is to practice. The doctrine of many churches concerning the atonement is basically Gnostic in its conclusions. Okay? Because Jesus did not share my nature, he, could not, he only could have died because he took my personal sin upon himself on the cross, then what need do I have then for morality? I, I've, I've been in good discussions, troubling discussions, with Christians who claim no matter what they do, no matter what they do, they can't lose their salvation. Some Christians would claim the law of Moses has no relevance today. Why would you read that? That's old. Old Testament, Ben. Old, you know. You don't need to read that anymore. If we promote the principle of unity, does that mean we desire unity with Gnostics, like the Nicolaitans, as they later became known? 
does the love of Jesus overcome such obstacles? Consider Jesus' words in Revelation chapter 2, verse 15, and Revelation chapter 2, verse 6 again, where Jesus says this, So thou hast also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Or Revelation chapter 2, verse 6, But this thou hast, that thou hatest, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So while Jesus stops short as he would of saying he hates them, he certainly does say that he hates their doctrine and he hates the deeds. How does this shape your view around unity? Can you have unity with a doctrine Jesus hates? A system that excuses and promotes sin. And that's the relevant question for us today. Are you willing to defend the truth that Jesus Christ delivered unto the saints from false doctrine the same way Paul was. Now for Paul, that meant putting some of the leaders of this movement, like Hymenaeus, out of fellowship. It also meant appealing directly to some of the followers of this movement. And we're going to see that in our next few studies. So that he could bring them back to the truth. But it didn't mean compromise in regards to doctrine or practice of the truth. So let me just summarize. Okay? I want to draw some conclusions about when we should or shouldn't unify. Clearly, Paul would not teach unity at all costs. He did not preach unity with the wolves. You don't put the wolves in with the sheep and say, hey, have some unity. He put Alexander and Hymenaeus out of the meeting. Now, why did he do that? He did that because of false doctrine. He did that because they were tearing down ecclesial leadership. He did that because they're creating disciples and leading others astray. He did that because there's no conscience regarding sin. He did that because they're causing God to be blasphemed and the scriptures to be dishonored. We can't have unity with those that destroy unity. We can't have unity with those that hold doctrine that Jesus hates. So Paul delivers these brethren to Satan. But the truth is that Paul didn't disfellowship these brethren. They disfellowshiped themselves. They created the conditions in which they were no longer in union with the ecclesia and with their true brethren in Ephesus. 
How much time do I have, Jeff? It's time. None. Per perfect. Just, just one comment, you know. The reason that these brethren did this, I'm sure was sincere. But there's something more subtle to it as well. And that to me was the real exhortation that I pulled out to be on time. Now I'm going to go over It says in Acts, these brethren were like wolves in the ecclesia to gather disciples after themselves. And I reckon that that's how it starts, brethren. When issues of disunity come up, it's not merely an issue of is this or that a wrong doctrine? In a dispassionate sort of way. It's that I'm representing people. I'm the leader. And so you can't just simply deal with the issue as the issue surfaces itself with the Bible open. Because you're, now you're dealing with a movement. And when I've dealt with disunity in, in just my, my short years in the Ecclesia, and when I've caused disunity, I'll have to admit that pride plays a very big part. When I came back from Israel, I was a member of the San Diego meeting, and, uh, and I... You know, I thought I knew a thing or two, right? Especially because I was in Israel and I knew how to speak a bit of Hebrew and I had gone to, to do the, the feasts over there. So there came up a business meeting. And I had been reading about how Jesus says in the Last Supper that he desires to have this Passover with them. I said, well, it's a Passover. And when I celebrate Passover in Israel, we use crackers. So I, I, at the business meeting, I raised my hand. I said, why don't we use crackers? What was I thinking? Why did I say that? Right? And suddenly, it's, it's like a bomb explodes, right? And the, some, some is on this side are saying, well, that makes sense. And some are saying, no, no, that doesn't make sense. And there's Eleanor Amaral. Does anyone know Sister Eleanor Amaral? I love that sister. And she's right there, and she's saying, and under her breath, she's saying, no, no, no. She, now, she was a Jew, right? She said, no, he shared our nature. No, she's saying under her breath. Did I, did I think to myself, well, gee, this would be a good idea to go, to, go up to, to Uncle Max and just say, hey, Max, may, I was thinking about bringing this up. Maybe we, we can talk about it together, the two of us. No. Because I wasn't really interested in doing the right thing in terms of the bread and wine. I mean, I was totally wrong, by the way, and wrong in my attitude, wrong in the decisions, wrong in terms of what the doctrine was about. I didn't understand anything about the atonement. I was just wrong completely. But it wasn't about that. 
is I wanted to show I knew something. I wanted to show I knew something. And I just wonder how often, back in Paul's day and in our day, that is really the cause of disunity. Is we want to show that we know something. We want to get the accolades. We want to draw disciples after ourselves. We don't want to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's at the heart. That right there in Acts chapter 20, that is at the heart of disunity. The disunity I've caused and the disunity I've seen. But for today's class, I just want us to understand that this was the issue Paul was dealing with head on. And we can all observe that this is a very serious issue. This is issue in terms of doctrine and in terms of practice. Now, how is Paul going to deal with this in the Ecclesia? What is he going to do? How is he going to bring some of the sheep following these ideas? How is he going to bring them back into the meeting? How is he going to try to bring about unity in Ephesus? Well, we'll take that up in our next class.